Before I pray, I'd like to read one verse from Isaiah 50, verse 4, says this, The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with the word him who is weary. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the Lord's day. Thank you for how you use the preaching of your word to sustain with the word those who are weary. I want to pray in a special way, Lord, for those who are weary this morning coming in, that, you're, that this word would be used to strengthen them, uh, to give them a little bit of spiritual water and a little bit of spiritual food to nourish them on their journey to make them feel like they can press forward to their heavenly goal. And Lord, I pray that you would use this word to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry that you would equip the saints to love one another well, to encourage one another, to admonish one another, uh, to build one another up and to help one another. Lord, I pray that um, through the shaping that your word is meant to do, uh, that you would use the lips of your people to sustain one another in their weariness and to help one another in their weakness and to admonish one another in their idleness when they're struggling in sin. Lord, so use this word as you love to do, Lord, to equip your people so that we would grow up into Christ. And may that be the aim of my labors this morning, Lord, to see your people growing in maturity in Christ so that they would be presented before you with the splendor on that day. And may this be that day. Come, Lord Jesus, and be honored in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the last uh, several weeks uh, in the book of First Thessalonians, we've kind of got into the heart of the book, um, talking about the Lord's return, and it's been dripping with hope. We've talked about how whether we are alive or whether we're dead, whether awake or asleep, when the Lord returns, when he comes, we will be resurrected. If we are dead, we will be transformed, even if we're alive, and we will be caught up together with all the saints with our Lord, and we will always be with the Lord. And last week, we saw, again, our hope as children of light and those who are not caught off guard by the coming of the Lord because we're looking forward to it, because we're living wakeful and sober lives, anticipating his return, and we get to look forward to that end. And even though that end is going to be intense when Jesus comes back again, it's actually a day of hope for the believer, because we're not destined for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. And so we're looking forward to that day. And um, even though it's going to be a day of agony for many, especially because of the suddenness when it comes upon, we're going to be ready. We're going to be ready. And we've been being prepared for that through these uh, words. And um, so we're down the home stretch now. In the book of 1 Thessalonians, there's just three more sermons, uh, today being one of them. So God willing, we're going to finish out in the next several weeks. Uh, but as we come down the home stretch, what we're going to see is we're going to see in more concrete terms what it looks like to live in light of his appearing. Uh, we've been told much about his appearing. We've got a heavy dose of that. And now if we're wondering, okay, how do we live? How then shall we live? The fact that he could come back and come back suddenly. Well, we're going to be told and we're going to be peppered with like 20 imperatives coming up 
over the next several weeks. I'm not going to give them all to you at once. You can thank me for that. Um, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the first uh, block of them in this text. And really what, what they highlight is how we are to live responsibly in light of the Lord's return. And specifically in three relationships we're going to look at this morning. And so we are to respond responsibly toward, uh, you could say, uh, church leaders, we are to respond responsibly toward church members. And then it gets broader. Think of it as concentric circles, okay? Respond responsibly toward church leaders, toward fellow church members, okay, moving out a little bit more, and then toward everyone in our lives. It's all encompassing. And so we're going to look at those different kind of layers of responsibility we have to live, uh, live in <clears throat> in light of the, the Lord's return. So let's start right away in uh, verses looking at verses um, 12 and 13. So let me reread those for us and talking about our, how we are to respond responsibly toward church leaders in light of the coming of the Lord. Verse 12, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves, okay? So this first instruction is responding responsibly, responsibly toward leaders uh, in the local church. And um, we're gonna notice that uh, leaders, and we can read it in the rest of the New Testament, right? Leaders have a wonderful task. Um, it's a glorious task. I can speak from experience. It's, it's an awesome thing to be called to be part of shepherding God's people in a local church. Um, it's a, it's a wonderful task, but it's also a weighty task. And that's why the scriptures are so serious about the qualifications of leaders. Uh, first Timothy chapter three, Titus chapter one, uh, because it is, it is a weighty task to be carried out on this side of heaven. And, um, part of the weight of it is that as we're put over God's people, uh, to care for them, uh, kind of like lightning strikes things that are higher up, <laughs> Uh, when God puts people, um, leaders, over his people in a local church, uh, the, the lightning strikes there most often. And uh, so it is, in a sense, not for the faint of heart. It is, um, it is a weighty task. It's difficult. And uh, there may be, in this context, it's hard to say for sure, but notice how verse 13 ended. It says, you know, be at peace. Or sorry, verse, yeah, verse 13. Be at peace among yourselves. It's hard to know if there's a little bit of, a uh, little bit of unrest there uh, toward the leaders in Thessalonica that Paul's dealing with. Um, but this, certainly, this is certainly a situation. And so obviously there's a lack of proper esteem. And you've heard people say that to, not, to not put people up on a pedestal. There's a lot of truth to that, right? Because every earthly leader is fallible, right? Every earthly leader is imperfect. Uh, and um, and leaders kind of live out their calling in kind of a fishbowl, and, and people get to see their lives uh, more, and they're under, um, and rightfully so in a lot of ways, under more, more scrutiny. And so you can see, you can see imperfections, and uh, leaders will fail you at one level or another, right? And so uh, that's important to keep in mind. So there's a lot of truth in that, not to put people up on a pedestal, but there is a proper respect that this text is trying to instill in God's people. And, uh, and I hope it'll be instructive for you this morning as you're thinking about part of how you live responsibly in light of the Lord's 
return. And so um, one way to think about this is um, you have a responsibility to respect leaders who are carrying out their responsibilities before the Lord. And all of us in light of the Lord's coming. That's maybe a way you could summarize this first point, that you have a responsibility as God's people to uh, respect those who are carrying out their responsibilities under God in the local church. And uh, there is an emphasis on their responsibilities, and that's, that's the heart of what's meant to be respected here. If you look again at the text, to respect those who, and then he just gives a summary of the labors of leaders in the local church. So as we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord, or, and admonish you. So just think about those with me, okay, briefly. So they, um, they labor among you, okay? So they labor. They work hard. They expend their energies. They give themselves mind, body, and soul to looking after your care. And let's remind ourselves of the role of elders. They're meant to be uh, spiritual overseers in the local church, looking after the affairs of the church, those who are going to give account on the last day for the souls that were entrusted to them. Um, And so they're meant to lead God's people, provide spiritual guidance. They're meant to feed God's people. The word is at the heart of what that authority, that role of authority is. It's the ministry of the word that's meant to kind of reverberate in the body um, as the saints are equipped and using the word in their own uh, right. And, um, And they're meant to care, care for God's people. And so this is a labor of love. And just a moment, just to affirm uh, the leaders of the church again publicly, you have a wonderful group of elders here. And I can testify to the labors of love. These guys coming in after a long work day for an extended elder meeting where you would see your elders bowed in prayer, pouring out their souls um, in care for the church and thinking through and racking their brains on hard situations or even just areas of um, vision and responsibility and guidance in the church. The, your, your, labor, your leaders labor um, and they love this church. And I think I don't have to spend much time persuading you of that, but I just want to say it publicly again because I'm continually encouraged to labor alongside of these, these brothers and, and co-laborers in Christ. But notice it says this too, they labor among you, right? And so um, it may be easy sometimes, especially in the day uh, where, where you could listen to preachers all across the land. You could, you could benefit uh, from leadership all over, but they're not the ones that are going to be at your hospital bed. They're not the ones that are going to be looking you in the face. They're not the ones that are laboring over your soul, right? And so Respect those who labor among you, those who are glad to be planted here, to be pouring themselves out for you. Um, and so that's, that's, the, that's the command here, to respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord, not exalting themselves among you, but it's a position of spiritual authority that is God-given. Like in Acts 20, it says, the, speaking about the elders, it says that they, the Holy Spirit has made them overseers over you. So this is a God-given thing. God has put them in that position over you for you. And uh, the beauty of it is, and I think we know this experientially, is when there's good leadership in different spheres of life, people flourish under that, right? And so it is, it's a wonderful task. It's weighty. It's a, it's a, it's a powerful stewardship because it can be used for ill, or it can be used for tremendous good. 
but God doesn't want his leaders to shrink back from the fact that they do have spiritual oversight. He just wants them to use that responsibility responsibly and to use it within the bounds that scriptures give. And he wants his people who are mature and spiritually minded to recognize that and go, that's good. That's really good. We love that. We respect that. We honor that. And uh, so to, to respect those who labor among you, who um, are over you in the Lord, and then notice that last phrase, um, who admonish you. This is interesting uh, that it would include this because there's so many specific little things that he could draw out about leadership in the church, but he says who admonish you. This is one of the hardest aspects of leadership in a local church. You can, some, you can, you can condense it this way and the elders talk this way. You have to have hard conversations. Like if you really love people, you're going to be willing to have hard conversations. Okay, this is, this is one of the great temptations in spiritual leadership is to kind of shirk responsibility, kind of sweep things under the rug and not have to look at people. It's back on. Okay, tell me if I lose power again. Hopefully not spiritual power. Um, <laughs> hopefully that's not a bad sign. <laughs> I don't want to go anywhere without the Lord. Uh, where was I? Admonishing. I was admonishing you. No. Um, but, but we're called to have hard conversations. Leaders should not be leaders if they're not willing to say hard things to people. Because we do get... Thanks for serving us, Sean. Um, so this is, this is something that's so crucial in leadership. And I want you to kind of circle that word in that text and in your mind because that, that word's going to show up again. And I think the connection is pretty powerful in this passage. Uh, but you just see, this is what, what leaders are called to do. So if you're ever bothered that one of your spiritual leaders admonishes you, this text is meant to actually flip that attitude and go, thank you, God, for giving me leaders that are willing to admonish me because it's actually a sign of love when we're willing to admonish. Just like parents, like it's a sign of love when we're willing to admonish or correct a child. And that's, that's the idea, is uh, to admonish is to kind of teach, to counsel, to, uh, to give instruction. So it's instructive, but it's also corrective. So it's this influence that elders are meant to use that is instructive and corrective and it's meant to help people realign with the word of God because sometimes we drift, sometimes we get out of step and, and leaders are meant to, uh, with, through the lens of scripture, help people realign to the word of God and to the will of God. And that, that brings about many hard conversations at different times and in different seasons. But, uh, and I can tell you, that's one of the hardest parts of the labor. It's one of the hardest parts of labor, having to have those uh, conversations but it also ends up being some of the most redemptive uh, parts of it too. And so it's worth it. But again, hear that word from the outset that we are to respect those who give themselves to you in this way, for you in this way, and don't shrink back from honoring the Lord by admonishing you when it's, when it's needed because this is an act of love. And so then he continues, and there's really kind of two commands that are coupled here. He says that you are to respect 
spiritual leaders in the church, right? Uh, but also to esteem them. And those two ideas go hand in hand. Respect them and esteem them for their work, for the ways that they are pouring themselves out among you. And, it, and notice how it, it kind of modifies that thought, how it, how it explains it even further when it says, and to esteem them very highly. This is, I mean, it's interesting the language that the text just used, like very highly, like, like, like exceedingly, exceptionally, as much as possible. This is, that's the, the sense, that's the idea. Esteem them very highly. And uh, just to illustrate this briefly, uh, Pastor Ben and Pastor Daniel were helping me think through this. And one illustration that those guys were thinking through with me was this. Um, you remember in 2020, 2020, how could we forget, right? Uh, the, um, the riots that were happening in Minneapolis and then, and then spread throughout the, throughout the country, right? Causing billions of dollars worth of damage. And uh, in the midst of that, all of that was because of the George Floyd kind of moment in Minneapolis and, um, and the police encounter there. Um, but what was, what was the tagline that was coming out of that? Defund the police, right? Now, um, I know we're in central Minnesota, so I, I'm a little bit preaching to the choir, a little bit, a little more conservative in this way. But the reality was, is like, I'm hearing, I'm hearing that in a time where just chaos is breaking out. I'm going, hey, let me tell you one of the stupidest things we could do right now. Like defund the police, right? Like cripple and hamstring the people that risk their lives daily so that we could actually have some peace and stability in this land that we obviously take for granted right? Because we're going to be so quick to say, you know, defund the police. And, and so instead of like defunding them, you should actually be rallying around them because law and order is central to uh, the American experience. For us to be able to actually enjoy uh, life together and do the things that we're supposed to be doing every single day, we depend on that law and order. And notice the people who took most seriously that call to defund the police are the pockets in our nation that have the most crime and the most instability and the places that people are fleeing pretty quickly, actually, statistically. And so, um, in other words, it's a bad idea. The point I'm bringing this up was not to make a big political statement right here, uh, but it was to be able to say, like, um, look at the work that police officers do, right? Men and women in uniform, when they, the things that they're doing, I'm picturing them, kiss their, uh, man kiss his wife and children goodbye and then go out and they're worried because they don't know, especially during the harder times, right? When there's, when there's more, uh, more volatile times and they're wondering, are they going to come back safely? What are they going to encounter today? And they're constantly putting themselves in difficult situations. We should look at that if our heads are on straight and go, hey, we should honor that, right? right? We should respect that. That will be good for everybody, <laughs> right, to actually do that. And so we have this, I think, right conservative instinct to want to go, I want to, I, not only do I want to just be okay with police officers being paid, I want to esteem them. I want to respect them, right? And in a similar way, we want to, in the church of the God, we want to esteem highly those who labor among us, those who are putting themselves out there for you and are willing to be lightning rods, from spiritual attacks often for your sake, to esteem that highly, right? And, uh, and I could say it this way, that we should esteem police officers. You say, what's even closer to God's heart is his church. 
and the leaders of his church and those who are putting themselves out there in this way. So just get a proper proportion to recognize some of your conservative instincts and say, how do I even think about that in relationship to leadership in the local church? And so don't want to belabor this point, but let's, let's move on to that second way. It's, it's, um, it's explaining that phrase, to esteem them very highly in love because of their works. So notice it's not just like this cold like respect. It's actually an affectionate response and care. And I think about the Apostle Paul's words uh, to the Corinthians when he's talking about his labors for them. And he's, he's saying to them, you know, he's talking to them about his care for them and the way he's pouring themselves out for them. And he's noticing a coldness from them. And so his response to that was like, my heart is wide open toward you. Open your hearts a little wider toward me. Right? That's, that's his heart. And so it kind of brings out the dynamic a little bit. That in a mature Christian, they're not only going to respect and esteem leadership, they're going to do so affectionately. And that's actually a mark of maturity as we're waiting for the Lord's return. And that's going to be better for absolutely everybody. So take to heart here, um, take to heart here what's being, what's being said in terms of these, uh, this responsibility toward church leaders. Now, let's move on to the next point. There's more I could say, but I want to move on to point number two, our, our responsibility to respond, respond responsibly toward church members. Okay, let's look at the next section here. If you're looking with me, pick up at verse 14. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, Help the weak, be patient with them all. Okay, so see those three things. I really want to get a little practical in this section and really ask ourselves the question, okay, how do we respond responsibly when a church member is idle? How do we respond responsibly when a church member is faint-hearted? How do we respond responsibly when a church member is, what's the last one? Weak, okay? So we're going we're gonna to take those in turn kind of three sub-points here under our responsibility toward church members. But church members who are idle. Remember we came across this phrase not long ago um, in, our, in our study back in chapter 4. Um, Paul was, it was admonishing uh, those who are idle and he says to them, um, remember in chapter 4 uh, verse 11, he says, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly toward outsiders and be dependent on no one. And so Paul was concerned that there were some believers that were moochers, right? They were able-bodied. They should be out doing meaningful, purposeful work um, in the service of others. Uh, instead, they're abdicating respons- their responsibilities. Uh, they're, being, they're being lazy, Uh, they are sinfully dependent on other people, right? And their ability to actually do things is what makes it sinful. Is like they could, but they're not. And they're just deciding to depend on other people instead of taking their responsibility. So that was a concern for Paul. I mentioned that in 2 Thessalonians, it's going to continue to be a concern. And so what gave, uh, you know, a few verses is going to end up being an entire thick paragraph in 2 Thessalonians because it continues to be an issue. But so there's people among the congregation that are idle. It's a bad witness. It's bringing reproach on the name of Christ. Um, it's not good for them. It's not good for others, right? And uh, so Paul is wanting, he's saying to admonish 
uh, such a person, but it could expand beyond that. That's just one area of sin. It could be other areas where God's name is being dishonored by a fellow Christian, and that is, that is a time for admonishing, right? That's the proper medicine in this case. And so, um, but notice here, um, notice here that, uh, that the everyday believers in the local congregation are being called to do admonishing, right? So I'm going to come back to that in a moment. Um, but, but notice what's being called for here, to admonish, to, to give your own counsel, to be able to counsel in light of God's word, to encourage a fellow brother or sister to avoid something that they're doing, to stop doing something that they're doing, to start doing that, that something they ought to be doing. Um, so whether it's a sin of omission or a sin of commission, um, to, to admonish them, to warn, to instruct, to, incre- to correct this is a God-given responsibility of every single Christian to be willing to admonish. In other words, you get to have hard conversations too, right? This is part of the work that God has called you to do. And uh, it's actually beautiful. In Colossians uh, chapter 3, uh, verse 16, the same word is brought out. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. But notice how important the word is. How important it is for the word to dwell in us richly so that we can actually admonish well. Because we're not just admonishing someone because they're doing something we don't like. Right? They're bothering us. Right? You're annoying me. Or you're stepping on one of my preferences. It's that they're out of step with the word of God. And so that's where the correction is needed, right? And, and so it's actually celebrated. It's actually something that's a sign of health to be willing to do that. And we need, we need a lot of wisdom, right? Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. We need wisdom to do this well. It's a very, it's a delicate thing, isn't it? To, to correct another person. Um, and so we, we want to, we need to be able to take the log out of our own eyes, Right? so that we can see clearly enough to take the speck out of our neighbor's eye. We want all of us to have clear spiritual vision, and this is part of maintaining that in the body of Christ, is being willing to correct when it's needed, but to do that wisely, to do it well. So we need wisdom to know how to do this. We need wisdom to see um, how a certain behavior is out of step with the word of God and the will of God. Um, and so we need discernment. That's going to come from having God's word shaping our minds and our hearts so that we actually see it for what it is. Um, we need wisdom to be able to speak lovingly and also to use scripture when we do it. And that's, I'm getting practical now. Like, how do you admonish someone well? Well, you, you, need, to have the, to, you need to have discernment from the word of God to be able to see that it's out of step. You need wisdom to be able to speak lovingly and to use scripture, right? So you're not just shooting from the hip talking about your own preferences, but it's showing them from the scriptures why, why it's, they're out of step. And use biblical vocabulary too. Use biblical vocabulary when we're admonishing one another. And uh, this is more of an extreme, um, I'm, I'm trying to think of, of an example. So instead of using a word like, so-and-so had an affair, use a biblical word like, they committed adultery right? So that's just one example, just using biblical vocabulary. Hopefully it's not that extreme of an example, but, but just biblical vocabulary um, to, to describe, to describe um, where someone is out of step so that their consciences are awakened, 
because that's important. Engage the conscience. That's the point of bringing such a, a correction. So we need wisdom also um, to care most about the right things, right? So again, this is true in parenting too, where sometimes we're, we can be most concerned about the annoyance something is causing, right? The inconvenience something is causing. And um, so we, we want to get over those things. It's got to be about something greater. And so we want to be motivated by love, like them to benefit from this correction and for God to be honored in it. And so those things should be more ultimate. So we need wisdom to make sure that we're aiming for the right things. And, um, and so all of those things, I keep saying the word wisdom, to admonish and wisdom, we need wisdom for it. And so James 1.5, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God, right? And God promises to give generously without reproach. When I'm counseling someone, one of the things I love to pray is, I love to pray, I love to pray that text, James 1, 5, and take God at his word on that promise. And I, and I love turning back and thanking him for the wisdom that he supplies because uh, he brings things to mind and gives clarity that I didn't have in myself. And I trust that you have found that to be the case too. Um, as, as I'm coming uh, down the home stretch here on this, on this um, admonishment piece, um, I want to just say that uh, another big part of admonishing well is not just just directing speech and coming with an accusation like, hey, you're doing this. Learning the art and the wisdom of asking good questions, right? The souls of men and women are deep wells and a man or woman of wisdom will draw them out, right? And one of the ways we draw out their hearts and help them to see themselves in light of God's word is to ask good questions. Um, so so um, accusations tend to harden, but questions tend to prick the conscience and help them think through the issue. And so think, so we can pray that God would make us a church with wise admonishers, wise counselors, people that can care for one another well. And uh, so closing this point out with this simple application, healthy churches don't rely solely on leaders to do the admonishing. Healthy churches do not rely solely on the leaders. They learn how to admonish from their leaders and from the word of God and the wisdom that it contains. But it, we recognize that every believer is called to be willing to admonish one another. And this is actually how you strengthen the hand of your elders. Imagine if the elders are the only ones having hard conversations in the church because you're unwilling to do it. But you know someone maybe even better in some ways than the elder does, right? And you're seeing something maybe even more clearly than the elder does at that time. Well, we're all given the spirit of God, given the word of God, and uh, these kind of instructions are meant to equip us to do this well, to do it redemptively. And how many of us have been admonished at one point or another and we're so thankful for that godly correction? Raise your hand if you've been admonished by someone in your life and it's been helpful, you know? If not, okay, raise it if not, then I'll come find you after church. No, just kidding. (laughs) But it's such a gift to receive godly admonishment. Faithful are the wounds of a friend and the wise heart actually, no one loves to be admonished, but the wise heart sees the deep good in it and will actually welcome it and be grateful for it. And even sooner than, than later. So don't, don't make your leaders always be the bad cops and have the hard conversations when you have a God-given responsibility to have those kinds of conversations, right? 
And uh, we talk about this as the elders too. Like if just one elder is just willing, is the one that's willing to have all those conversations, then it's like all the other guys, they're good guys. The rest, that guy over there, he's the bad guy. And so like, we've got to talk about that as elders. Like, okay, who wants to have this conversation? You know, um, because we we share, share the load together and we all need to be willing to admonish one another. So you get the point. Um, we are to admonish the idol. We are to encourage the faint-hearted. So how do we respond faith, Respond responsibly when a church member is faint-hearted? And don't we get faint-hearted sometimes? And there's a lot of different reasons why one can get faint-hearted. I will not exhaust it, but here's some of the things that uh, me and Pastor Ben and Pastor Daniel were brainstorming. Sometimes people are faint-hearted because prolonged suffering. The suffering in their life that just is lingering over extended periods of time. You get faint. Or, quote-unquote, unanswered prayer. Things that we've asked the Lord for and we continue to ask the Lord for, but it doesn't seem like they're being answered, at least not in our time and in our way, right? But you get weary of asking. Um, Sometimes this faint-heartedness comes from a string of disappointments. It just seems like this happened and it's disappointing. This happened and it's disappointing. This happened. Anytime you try to stand up, it knocks you down again. The string of disappointments Sometimes you're just discouraged or depressed. Sometimes, sometimes you get weary from doing good. You're just pouring yourself, trying to do good for other people. And it's, it, can be a, it can be a task and a half to be bearing burdens with other people so regularly. And you get, you get weary, you get faint-hearted. Sometimes we doubt, right? We're kind of plagued with different doubts um, on our minds. And, it, and since, you know, doubting tends to undermine trusting the Lord and which is what gives us strength, right? Sometimes we get weary because of the doubts that are constantly taking us. Sometimes it's because we lose sight of our aim. The goal, right, of crossing that finish line, that, that goal of being in the presence of the Lord. We lose sight of the return of the Lord and the thoughts of heaven. And uh, so we get faint-hearted for all kinds of different reasons. There's lots of reasons why we, we groan and... Um, so the picture you kind of get here a little bit is that you have pilgrims traveling on a journey and some of them at different times or another are getting weary and they're kind of getting to that point of like how, whatever form it takes, it's kind of that feeling of I cannot take another step, right? It's hard for me to keep going, right? And so the picture of these pilgrims traveling on a, on a journey together and some are getting uh, getting weary, they're getting faint-hearted, they need to be encouraged to press on. Or think about, um, switching the analogy a little bit, soldiers, right? In the heat of battle, right? One of their comrades is just like, I can't go on anymore, right? And in their camaraderie with one another, they shoulder them and say, they want to encourage them to press on and do what they don't think they can do at that moment. They need, they need much encouragement. And this is one of the great, like what a great thing to be commanded to do. (laughs) Encourage the faint-hearted, right? Sometimes you need to be on the receiving end of that. Sometimes you need to be on the giving end of that, but we're being equipped in this moment from God's word to make sure no pilgrim gets left behind, right? Um, We all at different times in different ways for different reasons will grow weary and faint-hearted, but God is jealous to make sure that his pilgrims are encouraged along the way. 
In other words, he's going to see to it, and part of how he's going to see to it is through his people. In Psalm 3, verse 3, it says that God is a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. And one of the main ways on this side of heaven that God lifts the chins of his people is through his people. And it's a beautiful thing to watch when one pilgrim slows down for another pilgrim and encourages them, inspires them. Well, with what? With what? What do you encourage them with? Give me some ideas. God's promises. A whole bunch of variations of that. God's word, right? We encourage one another with God's word. Did you notice the refrain that we've seen in the last two passages? Encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another and build one another up. That's this refrain. I remember when I heard Thessalonians preach through some years back, that's what I remembered from, from that book is that, that refrain, to encourage one another, encourage one another. Encourage one another in those passages with the coming of the Lord. What's going to come? Like brothers and sisters, you're going to have glorified bodies. You're going to be reunited in this great ultimate family reunion with all the saints. You're going to have a glorified body that's built to bear up under the weight of eternal glory. All of your senses will be more alive than ever. You'll have a body that will not fail you anymore and you will be always with the Lord. Tell a weary pilgrim that the day is going to come when they're never going to be weary again. Tell the weary pilgrim that's struggling with a physical ailment that's just that's weakening them in this life and you just tell them, you're going to have a glorified body. You're not going to be faint-hearted. You're not going to be tempted to be faint-hearted anymore. Very soon. You can make it. You can make it. Get across the finish line with us and do whatever it takes. Be the one that gives the cup of cold water. Say the kinds of things from God's word that are going to help them lift their drooping hands and strengthen their weak knees. This is one of the great things that we are called to do. And I prayed that verse, Isaiah 50, verse 4. The Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word those who are weary. We get the privilege of doing that. The better we know the word of God and the more attentive we are to our brothers and sisters around us, the more better position we're going to be to encourage and strengthen the faint-hearted. But that is... Our responsibility, brothers and sisters, we don't just go, oh, they seem faint. Keep going. Nope, they're faint. We help them press on. We help them. And I love how we sing with one another. We're almost home, right? It's becoming one of my favorite songs to sing as a church. And so we are to admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. Help the weak. So how do we respond responsibly in light of the Lord's coming? when a church member is weak. And we talk about weak, we're talking about someone who's suffering, maybe recovering from an illness or experiencing one. Um, It could be the experience of just different mental and physical limitations or disabilities. Um, It could be spiritually weak or immature or inexperienced. Could be someone who's materially poor, right? This word weak can take on a lot of different... um, aspects that we need to pay attention to. It could be someone who's um, marginalized. Maybe they're the black sheep of their family. They're, they're weak in that sense. They don't have as much influence, you know. Christians lived during different ages when we were the marginalized ones. That may be fast approaching the day where we're going to be in that position again where we, where we recognize there's a certain weakness of that when, we, when people lose their voice and we want to be a voice for the voiceless, right? Um, but to care, uh, to help 
help the weak, you just get a little idea of what, um, what, it, what that word entails, the weak. Romans 15 verse 1 says that we have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. 1 Corinthians 22, 12 verse 22 says uh, that the weaker parts of the body are indispensable. So we don't just dispense with them. Oh, they're weak. Cut them off. Survival of the fittest, right? No, we slow down. We provide the kind of aid, the kind of care. You know, if a wound is bleeding, right, it's part of our body, like we're going to tend to it, right? We don't just cut off and say, oh, we'll just do, a part, do away with it. And remember the words of our Lord Jesus, right? He says this in Acts 20, verse 35. I bet you're familiar with this text. Help the weak, And remember the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's more blessed to give than to receive. One of the ways that we give is by giving the help that the weak need. So it says that we are to help the weak. And uh, so we're all meant to have this sense of responsibility. And and one way to think about this too is that um, that we are, this responsibility is what we're reflecting in our membership covenant. If you go back and you read our membership covenant is really just a summary, a succinct summary of all the ways that God calls us to live out the Christian life with one another, right? The things that we're committing to, they're very concrete, but you could, you could summarize it as, hey, these are our responsibilities toward one another, and we're not pulling those out of thin air. In fact, everything said in this passage today would fit under one of those, one of those statements in our, in our membership covenant because we just want to draw to our minds the kinds of responsibilities that we are meant to exercise toward um, one another. And um, so notice here that at the end of that section, verse four, right? We, uh, we urge you brothers to admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. And then this phrase, uh, be patient with them all. Be patient with us all. How needed is this? Even as we are learning how to uh, admonish well, how to encourage well, how to help well, we also need to be reminded because all those needs, needs, needs that come tempt us toward impatience with one another, right? When we're having to slow down for someone else, right? When we're having to inconvenience, when we're having to uh, sacrifice for someone else, like the temptation to impatience is very real, especially the more, the more extensive the admonishment that is needed, and the more, the, the, the greater uh, encouragement that is needed for the faint-hearted, and the more uh, we have to lean in to provide the help uh, for those who are weak, we're tempted to be impatient um, and to respond poorly to these different needs um, and these different ways that God is calling us to serve. But in all cases, we are meant to be patient. And oftentimes, we treat impatience, like one of those respectable sins, like, oh, it's not as bad as the other ones. But no, God calls us to be patient even when we're pressed. And don't we notice, sometimes in parenting, we're pressed. In friendships, we're pressed. In caring for one another in the church, we're pressed. But when we're pressed, we need to remember those words with patience, right? To, to do them all patiently. And it's easier said than done, so it makes us throw ourselves on the Lord and to fight to keep our impatience in check and to cry out to God earnestly for the kind of patience that fits his servants. And uh, as we leave this point, I want to, uh, I want to illustrate uh, a very important point because I think when we think about the need for admonishment, the need for encouragement, the need for um, 
help, right? Um, there's different needs in the body, right? And so I think it should go without saying that we don't want to use a one-size-fits-all approach, but I just want to, I want to help this settle into and fix on our minds. And so to do that, I want to introduce you to Dr. Schumacher. Daniel got to name him. Dr. Schumacher, okay? So you're going into the office of Dr. Schumacher, okay? He's, he's a local doctor. You, don't, you haven't met him, I guess. Uh, so in Dr. Schumacher's office, uh, you go in, and uh, this time you have a really big sliver in your hand, okay? Couldn't get it on your own. So you go into Dr. Schumacher's office, and he says, oh, penicillin, you can go, okay? Next time you come in, okay, another person comes in to Dr. Schumacher's office. Oh, doc, oh, I just have this splitting headache, a migraine, penicillin, go, all right? You come back in again, another person's coming in, comes in, and you're just like, you know, I'm just feeling really, really sad and depressed. Penicillin, go, right? You just keep adding the ailments. Dr. Schumacher has plenty of room in his schedule, and he knows exactly what to give, right? Penicillin. Every time you go in, you're going to get penicillin from Dr. Schumacher, right? Well, it can be... <laughs> How do you feel about that doctor, right? <laughs> Like, this doctor really needs to learn, <laughs> one, that there's more than one medication, right? And there's more than one problem, right? And different problems call for different treatments, right? Medicines, cures. And so the believer needs to recognize that too so that we don't try to apply the same thing to everybody. So what happens when someone is really faint-hearted and it's not a sin issue, they're really faint-hearted and you just like, what they need right now is admonishment, Right? That's like acting like Dr. Schumacher, right? And so you can see just how important it is as the body of Christ to recognize what the needs are and then to get good at applying the right remedies to the right kinds of needs and problems and troubles within the Christian life. And notice that even a sermon cannot do that. Like some of you are idle, some of you are faint-hearted, and some of you need a lot of help. And the sermon, God can take it by his spirit and do that, but really what he wants to do is he wants to shape the people of God to minister to one another, to make sure that the right remedies are being applied, right? Because there's all kinds of different problems, and so we need the wisdom. And so we don't want to be like Dr. Schumacher. Thanks for the name, Daniel. That was great. Dr. Schumacher. Now you'll remember him. Um, <laughs> you're going to be going into the Pierce Clinic and be like, is Dr. Schumacher here? <laughs> My pastor said he exists. <laughs> that was a lie. Okay, uh, moving on to our final point now that we prayed for wisdom to apply the right remedy to the right needs. So the last one is we want to respond responsibly toward everyone in our lives. And so just notice how it kind of broadens here in verse 15. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. So notice this goes beyond the body. It includes the body of Christ, includes leaders, includes the body of Christ, but it's going beyond that to everyone in our lives. Do you see that? Because we're kind of, these layers of responsibility just spreading out. Leaders, congregation, now we're talking about responsibility toward, toward everyone. And this must be one of the most difficult commands to obey in all the scriptures. I think this is, in a lot of ways, experientially at least, the heights of demand for godliness in the Christian 
life. It is our natural reaction to want to retaliate when we are wronged. Some of us do that really aggressively. Some of us do it passive-aggressively, right? But that desire to retaliate, even if that's just being the cold shoulder, I got to give him something, right? Got to give him something. It's in, there's an intense desire to want to, you could say, repay evil for evil when we are wronged. It's a powerful inclination, and it's only by the grace of God that we can actually obey what any of the things that we've talked about this morning, but, but this one in particular, to actually obey this command to not return evil for evil. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil. And so this is such a big command that I kind of picture it like this. Like if you were uh, in going up into the house of a giant, like the steps aren't like ours. Like how tall are our steps? I don't know. Contractor in here? Uh, okay, like, I don't know, 12 inches or something? I don't know. Okay, but you're going up a giant step. Like it's something you have to like jump up, do a pull up, climb yourself on it. Okay, that first step, okay, is the restraint step where it's like, okay, my natural instinct is to want to retaliate right now. And so I have to restrain it. That's hard enough to do, right? But you get up there, you get up on that step and you realize the next step is even a little higher. Do you see that second step in that verse? So see that no one repays anyone evil for evil. Okay, that's restraint. That's self-control. Okay, that's not acting on our natural instinct. But notice the next step, even higher. We need a trampoline to jump off of this one. Okay, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Isn't that another level? Okay, you've asked a lot of me, Pastor, to, to just not punch someone in the face right now. Okay, like, all right, well, that's a good start, good restraint, right? But the next step is do good to them. That's what's being demanded here in this text. Do good to one another and to everyone. And notice here, when it says no retaliation, when it says see to it that no one repays anyone evil for evil, does that not close all the loopholes? No one, anyone, it's comprehensive. There's no exceptions, right? I'm not talking about we have to just go on mindlessly suffering abuse, then we can't get help for that. Right? But all I'm saying is God is calling his people not to retaliate evil for evil, and there's no exceptions for it. Because what do we do immediately when we're wronged? The inner lawyer kicks in, right? And we start to justify what we're about to do, right? That's, that's what we tend to do, but God's saying, nope, not my people, not the children of light. They're different. They have my spirit in them. They have my word to guide them. They have one another to admonish them and help keep them on track. And so we are called to climb these two steps by the grace of God. And it is powerful when we, when we do it. And that second step, notice even the language in that, right? When it says this, it says, um, but seek to do good, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. So do it consistently, always, and impartially to everyone. Okay, maybe to this person I really generally like over here, right? They wronged me this one time. Okay, I won't retaliate. Nope. Consistently to everyone. Seek to do good to those who do evil to us. Remember the words in uh, Romans 12, verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil. Can you finish that? But overcome evil with good. 
Yeah, this is part of how we do it. We've got to get the steps clear in our minds, the restraint, but also the blessing that we give to others. As Peter said in 1 Peter 3, 9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. This is really hard to do, isn't it? It's, really, it's easier said than done. It reads a little easier on the page than it does out in real life. And I remember hearing this story of a woman who was ready to end her marriage and she comes in, this is another one of these counseling examples, okay? He co- she comes into this, to this pastor's office who's also a columnist, he writes for, for a newspaper and he, he uh, tells a story of how she came in and not only did she say that she wanted to divorce him, but she's like, before I divorce him, I want to hurt him as much as he has hurt me. I mean, that is totally her mindset right now. And you can imagine that. She'll be like, oh, okay. How are we going to work with this? Okay, um, so this is the counsel that he gives. He says, I want you to go home and I want you to really love your husband as much as you can. I mean, tell him how much he means to you. Praise him for every kind of decent trait. Go out of your way to be kind, to be considerate, to be generous. Like, do all these things you feel like he does not deserve. And after you've convinced him of your undying love for him, right, and that you cannot uh, live without him, then drop the bomb, right? Do this for months, then drop the bomb, right? Tell him that you're getting a divorce. That's going to really hurt him. And she is just like drooling. She's like, yeah, that's a great plan, right? She goes home for two months and to a T tries to carry this out, right? And the pastor doesn't hear from her. So he calls her up and she says, well, you know, is it, is it time? You know, is it time to, to uh, you know, follow through on the divorce? And she said, divorce? I mean, never. I discovered that I really loved him. Right? There's something about like training ourselves not to return evil for evil because it's amazing how, how much our emotions can come around, how much those affections come, come around when, we just, when we're actually acting obediently, when we're doing the right things. I can tell you this, if we're never willing to actually obey God and do the right things, we can never expect the, other, the, the affections to change, right? Uh, God's designed them to follow on the, on the heels of truth and on the heels of loving obedience. And so... Um, it's the same here with our enemies. You know, when we, it seems impossible until you start doing it. When you start actually doing it and start actually doing the kind of things habitually that they don't deserve in a sense, um, all of a sudden, hearts start to widen. Not a few missionaries have found this on the mission field from like their torturers, right? As they seek to do good for them and not return evil for evil, they find their hearts widening toward even their enemies, it sounds familiar, doesn't it? Our Lord Jesus, you know, this does seem impossible, but I don't think any of us can say that we haven't seen it done. Because at the very heart of the story of Scripture is the story about the only person who's never done anything wrong, who's been wronged by everybody. Like every single person has wronged our Lord Jesus Christ. I have, you have, and we've done it in some pretty heinous ways too. You know, we have wronged him over and over and over again. And yet he came to us, 
right? In fact, you could say he's the ultimate leader that is worthy of all of our esteem because he came and he lived among us. He took on human flesh so that he could be among us. God, the Father, sent him to put him over us so that we had someone to guide us out of the mess that we put ourselves in. And when he met us there, he could have returned evil for evil, right? But instead, he did the opposite. He blessed us by turning us away from our sins, right? He blessed us so that we could experience his favor, so that we can experience eternal joy. All those things are not a given. All those things came because Jesus didn't return evil for evil, but instead returned good for evil. And even right now, to the end of the age, always, he is willing to heap good upon the heads of people that have done evil if they will turn from their sin and trust in him for the forgiveness of their sins. This is our hope. This is our hope. And this is our motivation to do all the things that, we, that have been put before us in this passage, right? Ultimately, it's about esteeming that leader, the Lord Jesus. It's about adoring that leader for his work, his work on the cross, his tireless care in his life. We look at the way he cares for souls, and we let that shape the way that we love those who are trying to care for ours even in a smaller way to a smaller scale, but meaningful right here in our context. We let that shape how much we are willing to put ourselves out there to admonish people, even though they're hard conversations to have. We let that shape the way that we help and linger with those who are faint of heart and we'll stick with them a little bit longer to make sure that they get across the finish line. We let the love of Jesus Christ shape the way that we help the weakest among us. And I can praise God because I do see the way the church is helping people that are in these states of weakness or weariness or even idleness or sins of different. I'm seeing the body of Christ do this and it's a beautiful thing to watch and it shows that hearts are being shaped by this reality of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who didn't return evil for evil but instead sought to do good for our souls. And so let's honor him as we continue to carry out our responsibilities. We want to be a people that, that honor the Lord in these ways. And so think, brothers and sisters, about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Think about it often, that he's going to split the skies. He's going to come with that cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive will be gathered together with them in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Encourage one another with these things. Let the hope of what is to come just shape the way that we attentively care for one another and apply the right medicines to the right ailments and the right problems. And so what I want to do now is I want to just turn to prayer. And uh, I wish I left more time for a congregational prayer, but I'm going to pray for us. I just really ask you just to join your hearts with me as I cry out to God for these specific things. Lord, thank you for your church. Thank you for your love for sinners like us. And Lord, we acknowledge that we have this deep instinct to return evil for evil. And Lord, it sometimes feels so far from us to actually not just have the restraint not to return evil for evil, but to actually do good to those who hurt us. Lord, I pray that you would help us depend more fully upon your spirit and not look to our own resources to do the things you're calling us to do. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your love for us. 
We thank you for dying for us. We thank you for showing us what it looks like to love enemies, what it looks like to help the weak, what it looks like to encourage the faint-hearted, what it looks like to admonish the idol, what it looks like to love our leaders. Even you, Lord Jesus, as you submitted to the Father and, and esteemed your Father in his will above all else, Lord, I thank you that you have modeled every single aspect of this text for us. We esteem you, Lord Jesus. We worship you. We praise you for leading us. And we thank you that you're gonna lead us through this life and you're gonna bring us safely home. We thank you that you are among us by your spirit. And to the end of the age, you will be with us through all the work that you call us to do. So Lord, I pray that you take this word to shape the convictions of your people so that we would be a church that actually does the things that you're calling us to do as we're waiting for our Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for helping us turn from idols to serve the living and the true God and to wait for you, Lord Jesus, till you come from heaven and you restore all things and you transform our lives. And I pray that our waiting would be marked by sobriety, that our waiting would be marked by this spiritual wakefulness. Lord, help us to be awake enough to encourage one another. Help us to be attentive enough and sober enough to be able to help one another with precision. And Lord, help us to grow in our wisdom, to admonish one another with skill so that when one of us is stuck, we know how to help each other get unstuck. And Lord, I pray for those who are stuck right now, that they really need admonishment. Lord, that you would ultimately be their admonisher, that they would hear this word, be pricked in conscience and turn, Lord, again to you and want to be realigned with your will. Pray for the faint-hearted, Lord. Have mercy. Sustain them in their weariness, Lord. Help them to see that as long as these days may feel, it's nothing compared to eternity. May these slight momentary afflictions, Lord, be shown to be preparing them for a weight of eternal glory beyond all comparison. Oh, Lord, help them to see the light at the end of the tunnel because there is one for the believer. And Lord, pray for the weak. Those who are just weak in so many ways feel like they can't help themselves in different ways. Lord, help them to see that you see them. And I pray that you'd prove to them that you see them by sending more of your people to help them. Thank you for the examples I've seen of all these things in your church. Lord, bless us as we keep turning to you for everything to live the Christian life for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.